Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris. This is episode 17, The First Villages. We are on the Japanese islands and the year is 13,500 BCE. Humans have been on these islands for at least the last 20,000 years. The people of Japan have been living in hunter-gatherer societies. As of yet, there has been no categorical signs of agriculture or farming. The islands of Japan are very fertile, with plenty of forests allowing the people to forage for nuts and berries. The fibrous material of plants is being used to construct baskets and nets, with which a couple of men punting along the river's edge in their hollowed out log can capture salmon with their hooks and spears. After they have a good amount of fish, they make their way back to the shore and where there is a clearing at the forest's edge. They hang the salmon out to dry on a purpose-built wooden frame that sits next to a wooden hut shelter which has carefully been constructed over a large narrow pit which has been dug into the ground. Large posts hold up the huts which are covered in thatched material for shelter and are suitable to comfortably hold an entire family. Alongside the hut there are four other huts with each containing another friendly family eager to assist with the preparation of the salmon that has been fished and the nuts that have been foraged. The acorns are to be found in a very large clay pot which has been carefully made using wet clay and the creator has gone to the trouble of creating an artistic band around the outside of the pot before he fire hardened it on the smouldering wood fire next to the water's edge. Some of the nuts are taken into the hut by a lady who takes care when entering the hut to go down the step to the lowered floor. She didn't want to take the pot because it's a bit too heavy to pick up and carry. Once inside the hut, she puts the nuts into a pot of water fixed in place at the side of the hut. The water is hot so that the nuts can be softened, but the heat comes from a fire underneath the pot. The people inside the hut do not worry about the smoke caused by the fire as the smoke escapes through an underground channel that was dug earlier in the summer that can allow the smoke to escape through a hole in the surface of the ground outside. Dinner is almost ready, which is just as well because two of the men have just arrived back from the pit trap on the edge of the woods where they have been lucky enough to have caught a wild boar, which will keep the tribe from getting hungry for the rest of the week. 
This is an early Jomon village, but it's only their village for the summer. When winter comes, the families will move on to a winter settlement, but they can quite likely come back here next year when the weather picks up again. Evidence of this way of life has been discovered through archaeological research and could be considered as one of the first villages. Wooden post holes have been discovered in the ground and shards of pottery that appear to belong to large clay vessels that would have proved difficult to carry over any kind of distance. There appears to be no evidence of an agricultural existence. This means that earliest village life did not rely on the emergence of agriculture first. In an area of affluent foraging, it seems to be quite reasonable that small village societies could have had a sedentary style of life, even if it was only for half of the year at a time. Palynology. Let's go back to the Fertile Crescent and take what we have learned from the Jomon people of Japan and put it into our research of the emergence of village life. Of course, we wouldn't want to just believe those that tell us that people developed agriculture and then started to build villages to live in afterwards, would we? We'd want to be a bit more open-minded and sensible and say, why would you build a farm somewhere that you didn't live? Surely someone would just steal your farm while you weren't there, and you'd probably be right. So we need to look for evidence of sedentary lifestyle, that is a life at a settled location in the Fertile Crescent. We can find something of interest at a site called Tel Abu Huraira, which can be found in the Euphrates Valley in modern day Syria. Tel Abu Huraira is an extremely interesting site to start our studies, due to the fact that it may have been occupied as long ago as 11,500 BCE which seems to be much earlier than the emergence of agriculture, but it appears to have been abandoned by 5000 BCE, which is undeniably after agriculture had firmly been established. It is now that we need to introduce a new brand of science that can assist us in understanding the lifestyles of people. We've all heard the phrase, you are what you eat. So if we can find out what people were eating, then we can find out what people were doing. In terms of consumption, you cannot get far away from the plant kingdom. And one thing that we can associate with seed plants is pollen. And the great thing about pollen is that it gets absolutely everywhere. And it gets preserved. Pollen study comes under the wider study called palynology, which loosely speaking is the study of organic particles such as pollen of course. If we go back to episode 8 about the ice ages, we discussed how ice cores can tell us about the climate of the earth. And to study further back in time, we study deeper down the core. The same principle works if we take a core sample from the earth. Depending on how deep down the core sample we want to go, 
we can extract the pollen and it will tell us a lot about what was going on at that point in time in the past. So if we go back to our site in modern Syria called Tel Abu Huraira, we can use palynology to determine that the earliest residents of the site in around 11,000 BCE were already starting to cultivate rye which if you remember from episode 15 we determined was a weed plant that was accidentally created by the human desire to cultivate wheat. So if the studies have indeed been dated accurately which is often difficult then we can see that the first settlers may have begun cultivating crops and they may have been forced to do this by the dramatic climate change brought on by the younger Dryas, the radical temperature drop in the northern hemisphere that undoubtedly killed a lot of the plant resources of the Fertile Crescent. We don't know that this is the entire truth because obviously we were not there, but we have uncovered enough to be able to start piecing together possible explanations. And that's what studying history is all about. So we're doing a good job, right? Tell Abu Huraira. Let us work out what happened at Tell Abu Huraira during its 6,000 year occupation. During episode 15, we spoke of the people of the Natufian culture. The Natufians were Epipaleolithic peoples who showed early signs of sedentary behaviour in the Levant region of the Fertile Crescent. Epipaleolithic refers to the very final part of the Old Stone Age. The Natufians were the people who have been credited for the creation of the settlement at Tel Abu Huraira and the most likely somewhat simultaneous cultivation of cereal crops nearby as shown by the palynological records. Certainly we believe that the Natufians were here by 11,000 BCE. The cultivation of cereal crops is supported by the change in seeds from the different geological levels at the site. The earliest level demonstrates typical wild seeds while a more recent level shows a change into the larger seeds typical of deliberate cultivation. The change in seed styles coincides with a drought contemporary to the younger Dryas. So that gives us an incredibly strong indicator for the catalyst of agriculture at this particular site. Cultivation was essential for survival, so it would appear. Evidence of thatched wooden round huts have been uncovered. So it does appear that the Natufians felt that it was the safest bet to settle in the area and went to some effort to make it comfortable. The fact that it has been guessed that around 200 people were settled there in the early years demonstrates that a few tribes may have linked together and set about creating a sedentary village of huts and farmland. 200 people gathered at one place is like nothing we've come across. Certainly 
nomadic tribes were believed to have consisted of groups of around 30 or 40. Even the typical Japanese site mentioned at the start of the podcast would surely have been a site of less than 30 members. Here we can see a serious change and maybe it was necessary for the tribes to amalgamate for the sake of safety in numbers. With a limit on resources putting pressure on people to take an agricultural route, a successful site like Tel Abu Huraira would have been the envy of those passing by, and surely there would have been contemplation of a takeover which required large numbers to resist. Smaller sites that emerged may well have been built and destroyed, leaving little to the archaeological record. A new method of dating called accelerator mass spectrometry, which actually attempts to count the amount of carbon-14 atoms as opposed to the record of the radioactive decay radiation present, was used at Tel Abu Huraira to give accurate dates to the seeds discovered at the site. They have told us a chronological story of the site, and it appears that after the initial success, the site may have been somewhat abandoned at around 8000 BCE before a re-emergence of success and some definite evidence of advanced domestication of the crops. It does appear that another nearby site called Murebet actually expanded during the abandonment of Tel Abu Huraira, so it may have been a simple migration. It could have been that domestication of crops and animals was developed at Murebet and brought back to Tel Abu Huraira. Murebet weakened and Abu Huraira thrived sometime after 7000 BCE. The growth of Tel Abu Huraira after 7000 BCE is absolutely considerable. Originally hunting wild gazelle to the brink of extinction, the Natufia culture made way for the pre-pottery Neolithic culture and developed goat and sheep farming. With the coinciding crop domestication, the site became fully agricultural and very much can be described as Neolithic. The village kept thriving and increasing in size, maybe even as many as five thousand people were living there. Before the abandonment the houses were built from timber but after the reoccupation they were made from mud bricks. The mud bricks would have been constructed using mud, sand and water and were either sun-dried or fired in a prehistoric kiln which wouldn't have been unlike a prehistoric oven. This would have coincided with the emergence of of pottery at the site, which would have been essential for transporting yields of crops, as well as sand and water around this huge village. Eventually, as we know, all good things must come to an end. It appears that the site was completely abandoned around 5000 BCE. However, the population may well have gradually declined in a lead up to this, so it may not have been a dramatic end, but it is difficult to tell this definitively.
fast forward to the 20th century and the politics of the sovereign state of Syria, made independent from France after the Second World War, the Syrian Republic was overthrown by a coup d'etat in 1963 and plans to build a water dam on the Euphrates River started to become a reality. The dam would ultimately flood the lands of Syria, many of which were of archaeological significance, including Tel Abu Huraira. Archaeologists rushed to the site to gather as much information as possible before the Tabqa Dam was completed in 1973. The site of Tel Abu Huraira now lies underwater at Lake Assad. Chattel Huyuk It is 7500 BCE. The residents of Tel Abu Huraira have seemingly ventured along the Euphrates River to the more prosperous Marebet to learn of their new agricultural techniques. And Tel Abu Huraira is temporarily low in population as a consequence. Meanwhile, around 300 miles northwest in southern Anatolia, a new society is emerging on the Charshamba River. Local tribes began to coalesce at a site on the river between two mounds rich with fish and water birds. The site is called Chatelhuyuk and is one of the most famous sites of the Neolithic. As at Tel Abu Huraira, the people of Chatelhuyuk began a sedentary lifestyle, building homes for themselves. They built them using mud bricks, a similar method which we saw at Tel Abu Huraira, but we also believe that the residents were using wood for strength and support, similar in principle to a modern timber stud wall. The walls were finished to provide a smooth surface. The strange thing about these houses at Chatelhuyuk is that in most cases you could not enter through the door. The reason? They often didn't build one. Entry into these houses had to be done through the roof by means of a wooden ladder. It would have been great for allowing smoke from the hearths and ovens to escape. I can also imagine great drama whenever it started raining and rain would have been commonplace in this area of the world. Water would have been pouring into your house through the roof unless you covered the hole quite quickly. I can't imagine what it must have been like for the elderly trying to get in and out though. I can't climb that ladder with my legs. Well, we're not carrying you all the way up there again today. Once the elderly person had passed on, probably through boredom after being confined to their house day in and day out, they appear to have been buried under the floor. Your next door neighbour at Chatelhuyuk would have built his house directly against the side of your house, meaning that to leave your house and get to the ground, you would have had to walk along the roofs of all your neighbours' houses. The people of Chatelhuyuk were proud of their homes, decorating the living area with artwork 
Sometimes it would be pictures of animals and sometimes it would be simple geometric patterns. Other residents were using the horns of bulls to create stylish platform decorations while others went for the more traditional handprint designs. I suppose it depends what you were into but it is certainly one of the earliest examples of interior design. Have you seen what old Elif, who lives ten houses along the roof that way, has done to her house? She's only drawn pictures of a man killing an oryx on her walls. Has she got no design sense? We can also see that some of the houses had a couple of separate rooms. The second room may have been an area for which residents could go and practice their craft work, possibly making a clay Venus figurine or something similar. If you were cooking the dinner in the main room, you may not want someone in the way making clay figures. Go and do that in your room. Some of the tools and artwork from Chatelhuyuk were crafted from obsidian, which is a volcanic glass-like material. The thing is that the obsidian would not have been sourced at Chatelhuyuk. Residents would have had to have travelled to Cappadocia in central Anatolia and in the direction of Telabu, Harewa and Marebet. So it is very likely that some form of trade was going on and quite possibly with people from other Neolithic villages. It is possible that people were bringing obsidian to the agriculturally rich village of Chatelhuyuk in exchange for some surplus stock from the farms. Look at this nice, precious and shiny obsidian, highly sought after. All I ask in return is a couple of cattle to take home to my family. At its most successful, Chatelhuyuk would have been the home to thousands of people, which by using our imagination, we can perhaps picture how vast the site must have been with its back-to-back mud-brick houses. For travellers stumbling across the village, it must have looked unimaginably awesome. Ritualistic behaviours seem to have been quite traditional. The creation of female figurines points towards fertility ritual. The presence of many pieces of artwork relating to animals and hunting suggest ritual in relation to that too. These are not altogether different from the findings of Upper Paleolithic Europe. Students of the excavations at Chatelhuyuk have suggested that it was a very egalitarian society with very little evidence of females being treated inferior to men and little evidence of a royal or religious hierarchy. It seems like the people of Chatelhuyuk were all in it together, working together to produce what was needed for the benefit of everyone. You could describe it as a village of liberal communism. Sadly, it appears that people ultimately got a bit bored with Chatelhuyuk and ultimately moved on to pastures greener in other areas of Anatolia. Maybe the site 
which was built on the eastern mound of the two, became a bit run down. And for those that didn't move on, they initially built a new village on the western mound before they moved on altogether, possibly by around 5,500 BCE. Jericho. Natufians, who are believed to have established Tel Abu Huraira, are also believed to have settled a site just over 300 miles southwest next to Tel Es Sultan. The settlement exists to this day and is called Jericho, but we do believe that there were a couple of times when Jericho was abandoned. So we do not believe that it has been continuously occupied. As a side note, the word Tel, which we can see often in these place names, is a Hebrew word for hill or a mound. The guess is that people were setting up home in this area, which was a fertile natural oasis with spring waters, so it was supportive of a healthy human lifestyle, and that they were doing this by 9000 BCE, evidenced by stone tools excavated in the area. So its emergence may be quite contemporary to tell Abu Huraira. Certainly, we can find evidence of mud brick dwellings that date back as far as 8500 BCE. But the fundamental difference between Jericho and Chatelhuyuk is that the buildings were circular and with domed roofs. This demonstrates that even though Natufian cultured people are thought to be responsible for the emergence of the individual settlements, that the approach to building the settlement differed. There was obviously no preferred theoretical blueprint for how to construct a village, and it appeared that it was just down to how those individuals there and then felt about their own village and how it should be built. There certainly is evidence of Jericho following the natural progressions of early village life. So fauna and flora domestication is believed to have happened quickly and stone tool creation as well as cloth weaving was definitely taking place. The people of Jericho seem to have had another thing in common with the people of Chatelhuyuk in that it appears that they were acquiring obsidian and it could have been coming from the same areas of eastern modern Turkey. This would point strongly towards there being a trade network emerging. It is also possible that merchants were acquiring the precious obsidian and travelling to established villages to trade the obsidian for anything that the village may have. Maybe woven clothes, maybe a portion of the crop harvest surplus, maybe animals. It was around the year 8000 BCE that something quite unusual and unexplained happened at Jericho. The people of the village deemed it necessary to begin construction around the circumference of their village of a two metre thick wall. The wall is referenced in the Hebrew Bible as the book of Joshua tells the story of how the Israelites destroyed the wall of Jericho during their conquest of the Canaanites. The wall itself was complemented by the contemporary construction of a tower, which is believed to have stood at around 8 metres in height. 
so why were the walls of Jericho and the Tower of Jericho constructed? Well, I sometimes like convenient and reasonable explanations and it would be reasonable to assume that nomadic peoples were still travelling around the lands of the Levant as proven by the existence of obsidian traders. Should you be living as nomads, you would probably come across other nomadic groups who would tell you of this amazing village of perhaps two or three thousand people enjoying the good life at their settlement at the oasis. Should the resources of the nomads be short in supply, with nothing to trade, you may find that the only option is to amalgamate your tribes and launch a raid for food and whatever else you could get your hands on. Chattelhuyuk, with its back-to-back houses and roof entrances, may have been somewhat easier to defend due to its layout, but Jericho, with its circular houses, may have been easier to infiltrate, so the wall and the tower may have been a necessity to protect the health and wealth of the village. Other explanations suggest that the wall was built to protect the village from floods, Whilst this might be possible and feasible, this would not necessarily explain the reason for the construction of the tower, which would seem reasonable if the wall was built for the purpose of defending the village from large groups of nomadic raiders. It would be great if you had the benefit of a larger range of sight from the tower if you were expecting raiders. The wall was built using mud bricks, but the tower was built using undressed stones. By undressed, we mean that the stones did not undergo any special shaping or surface preparation prior to being added to the construction. So if the tower was not defensive, then what would it be? Some experts have suggested that it had more of a spiritual or ceremonial purpose and that it could have been used as a means for worshipping the sun. Others have suggested that it could have been a symbol of subliminal power encouraging those who lived under its shadow to work for the good of the community. Personally, I like the defensive construction of the wall and tower because it makes convenient sense. There is little evidence in these early villages of a political or royal hierarchy, so I'm leaning away from the community symbol for the tower. Those that argue against the wall being defensive against raiders cite the fact that there is no evidence of a skirmish, so then we would be pushed towards the flood defence theory. Whatever the reasons, it's an intensely interesting debate. One final thing that I will mention about Jericho's earliest years is the emergence of plastered human skulls. The first plastered skulls at Jericho were excavated around the 1950s, but it wasn't until the available of CT scanning that we could find out more about the skulls. Computed tomography scanning, CT scanning or CAT scanning to give it all of its different names is a method of complex X-ray scanning which enables us to see beyond the surface of an object without destroying the surface, something we are reluctant to do with such a precious object such as the plastered skulls which is thousands of years old. What we have discovered is that the skull was initially stuffed with soil before a plastered surface was created and valued marine shells were placed on the skull as artificial eyes. Some have speculated 
that the skulls were prizes of defeated opponents' heads. However, it does appear that the plastered skulls directly relate to the bodies that had been buried under the floors of dwellings. We mentioned the underfloor burial practice earlier in the podcast at Chattelhuyuk. This would strongly suggest that the skulls being decorated belonged to close and celebrated individuals who were respected members of their homes and maybe their entire village. In some cases, the shells used for the eyes would have had to have been sourced from a distance away, so they could have been brought to the village by nomadic merchants. Since the early discoveries made at Jericho, we have uncovered skulls at other places, including Anatolia, that date as far back as 7500 BCE. So some have suggested that worshipping the spirit of ancestors may have been a strongly practised stole of religion. Next time, we're going to take a look at one of the next technological advances of these sedentary farming societies who were about to discover the wonder of metals. I always like to thank you for listening to the podcast. There's a real wave of support for the podcast and I'm very, very grateful for it. We've had over 11,000 listens to the podcast now, so it's an unimaginably large amount considering how slowly it started. And I was pleased with the slow start, to be honest with you, so 11,000 is wonderful. Earlier in the week, I had the pleasure of meeting Marina Amaral and Dan Jones. They have published a book which is called The Colour of Time. The book itself is a collection of around 200 pictures. They've been digitally colourised from their black and white original state. The black and white pictures date from the mid-19th century through to the mid-20th century, which is the typical period of black and white photography. Marina has used her self-taught talents to colourise these pictures, and she is exceptionally talented. She actually brings these pictures to life. And for me, history is all about breathing life into the past and bringing it into people's attentions nowadays. So some have criticised the Disneyfication of black and white pictures, that you're taking them away from their intended and original state. For me, it's the total opposite. She's bringing them to life, she's bringing them into the public attention and she's feeding people's imaginations and inspiring their will to study and research the periods that she's bringing back to life. Dan Jones is the historian who's worked on the project with Marina and has added the words to the pictures just so that we know what we're looking at. He's a broadcaster and an award-winning journalist. He's very well known in the UK for his work on the TV with historical books and and works that concentrate mainly on the medieval period. I was lucky enough to get the opportunity to meet them both and discuss their work and the book and it was fascinating to talk to them both. They're both lovely people. And if you want to find out more about the book, the book is called The Colour of Time. 
It's published by Head of Zeus. And there is also a podcast uh, created by Dan Snow, who is often confused with Dan Jones, uh, but he is his own man, Dan Snow, and many people will know of him. He publishes the History Hit podcast, a very well-known and famous podcast, and he did a special interview with Marina and Dan, and I recommend that you listen to it. If you're interested in this kind of work, go and listen to this podcast and then try and uh, find this book and, and have a look, even if you're not particularly interested or haven't had a particular interest in the past. I would recommend you go and find this book. Marina is very active on Twitter, so you can find her on Twitter and I, I believe she posts lots of pictures of her work there so you can actually get an insight into what this book's all about. I've got no motivation for promoting the book other than the fact that I love the book and I wanted to tell you all about it. I have to once again thank Ryan Stitt at the History of Ancient Greece podcast for his promotion of my podcast. Thank you very, very much indeed. I received a message from Jan or Jan. I, forgive me, I, I'm not clear what, how, how I pronounce your name, but you're from Laguna Niguel, California, USA. It says, hi Chris, just thought I'd let you know that I'm five episodes in and really enjoying it. You're doing a great job, keep up the good work. How many episodes do you anticipate? Well, this is a tough question for me to answer. I did try and uh, work it out quite early on how many episodes I thought it may take for me to make a comprehensive history of the world at the kind of pace that I'm travelling at. I believe that it could be uh, 350 to 400 episodes. It could be a, a seven or eight year project. I'm really not sure. I'm also somewhat open to where I go, the direction that the podcast takes me in. And I'm sort of adding and chopping and changing ideas a little bit. So maybe around 400 episodes, maybe around eight years of work, perhaps. I just don't know. But that's my gut instinct at this point. Interaction with the podcast is absolutely everything to me. I really want to hear what you think about the content of the podcast and your theories and thoughts because I'm a simple conveyor of information and really I'm no expert. So I want to hear your opinions about things because they're just as important as mine or anyone else's. None of us were there to witness these events, so we just look at the evidence and come up with our own conclusions. And your thoughts and opinions are very important, and this is part of my reason for promoting the discussion forum. So please, please get involved with the discussion forum. I think everyone's a little bit shy about putting it out there at the moment, what their thoughts and feelings are, but... Please come forward. I really want to incite some discussion. I think everyone's opinion is absolutely vital to the story of history. I did receive some feedback from um, a user called Hoy Polois on the Castbox forum that stated that although there was a little bit of concern from the biblical uh, reference at the start of episode one, she understood that this was um, an introduction, but then was a little bit put off by the fact that I said that men descended from monkeys. And I just wanted to point out that the men from monkeys theory was really 
a social response to the evolutionary theory, which actually predated Charles Darwin. So this men from monkeys reference to this kind of science was very relevant in 19th century, particularly in the UK. Large caricatures of Charles Darwin's head on a monkey's body were, were being published in media. The problem states the fact that men descend, well, men actually descended from apes, that's the feeling, because we are great apes, we descended from apes, and, and apes are distinct from monkeys in the modern world. Normally we, we think of monkeys as being long-tailed animals, apes don't have a tail. But then also, turn the whole thing on its head, apes probably descended from monkeys, and therefore men descended from monkeys through the ape lineage. So, yes, perhaps scientifically men did descend from monkeys. But let me throw that out there. Let me throw it out to you, the humble listeners, from me, the humble podcaster. Let's discuss it. Let's fire up a discussion. Did men descend from monkeys? Maybe I should have a question of the week each week and maybe that will incite some fierce debate, which is what I'm looking for. Well, I'm sorry for rambling on so much at the end of this podcast. There were a number of things that I wanted to bring up and mention. And there is some sad news that I've got to let you all know. Due to some personal commitments and personal plans, I'm not going to be able to publish another podcast now until the 28th of October. So there's going to be a two-week break. So... There'll be no new episode next week or the week after, but the week after that, we'll be back back to a weekly routine. So don't worry about that. It's just sometimes we life gets in the way. But I promise to be back on the 28th of October and back to a weekly routine. So the, the podcast is going to continue, but just we're going to take a two-week break. So you all deserve to know that. Thank you very much for listening and um, until three weeks from today we'll see you next time thank you for listening the history of the world podcast is hosted by audioboom it is available on spotify apple podcasts overcast castbox podcast republic stitcher and tune in you can also find it on deezer Google Podcasts and Radio Public. Feel free to email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Join our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter.